It is a gift to have been a part of camp, and uh, that was just some small snapshots of all the chaos we got to enjoy this week, and I am thankful to God for all the hard work. The Lord really unified uh, many in our body together as we serve the community, and just great to see children from our church and from the community coming together and us learning about Jesus and enjoying Him together. So today, we dive in in our series in the book of Ephesians. Um, We are in chapter 5, and so today we collide with Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. In this series, if you're a guest with us, we've been asking the question, what if God was our God? That is, if nothing else was our God and we treasured Christ above all things. The book of Ephesians lays out what it looks like to enjoy Him and to make much of Him in our heads and our hearts and our lives. And so we find ourselves now in the back half of Ephesians and Ephesians chapter 5 verses 22 through 33. And today we will be looking at, because that's what the text is about, Spirit-Filled Marriage. Spirit-filled marriage. So I'm going to read the passage in its entirety and then pray and we'll dive right in. Ephesians chapter 5 verses 22 through 33. Word of God says this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish." In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Father, we ask in this moment, we ask that you would draw near to us in a powerful way. We ask because we can't do what we need. We need to be changed from one degree of glory to another. Some of us in this room have never tasted and seen that you are good. There's been no spiritual awakening. There's been no desire for God that has erupted in the heart. And so, Father, we pray that you would do what only you could do. You would change hearts in this moment. For those of us who have professed faith in Jesus, we've been made new creations, but God, we need you to invade every fiber of our being. Fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might love what you love and hate what you hate. Father, come. 
come and give us a greater longing for your glory than our own. And help us keep our hands off of what is solely due the praise of your name. Father, as we talk about marriage and singleness in the church, Father, just briefly, it'll be, feel so incomplete in so many ways, but Father, we ask that the result would be healing. It would be comfort in desperate situations. It would be marked by the working of your Holy Spirit to change relationships in this church, to unify us, to make us sacrificial. Father, please, we ask that you would move now. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen, that's right. We are gathered this morning to um, focus on what Paul focuses on, and as the Princess Bride teaches us, marriage is what brings us together today. So, if you've never seen that, you should watch that section. It's pretty funny. Okay, so we're gathered together for marriage and talking about marriage because that's what Paul addresses. Now, what is true about marriage is that it is amazing and it is wonderful and there is so much joy to be had in a marriage relationship. But what is required for a sustained marriage is impossible for a healthy marriage. It is impossible without the filling of the Spirit of God. This is why Paul begins where he does. He has already told us, as we dove into last week, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. There is a sense of we should be consumed by the filling of the Spirit of God. And if we are, there will be fruit in our lives. Just like an apple tree bears apples, so the Spirit inside of us bears spiritual fruit. Fruit of patience and love and gentleness and faithfulness and joy and all these fruits that the Lord births up within us, this singular fruit of the Spirit is what we have to lean on Him and ask Him to grow. Now Paul tells us what happens. As the Spirit of God fills us up, some evidences that the tree is healthy, that the Spirit is alive, is that we address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's what it says in Ephesians chapter 5. And not only do we speak those psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to each other, but we also sing them and make melody in our hearts to the Lord. But another evidence that the Spirit of God is alive and at work is that it says in verse 21, look at it with me. Verse 20 says that we are giving thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a thankfulness that ravages our hearts. And finally, verse 21 there is a submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. A submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. And so what we have is this idea in the church that men submit to women and women submit to men. What does that mean? It means that the church is characterized by sacrificial service. Because there's something happens 
Tim Keller says this in his book, and I'm going to be quoting from this book quite a bit today. The meaning of marriage. I use it in my marriage counseling uh, many times. The meaning of marriage by Tim and Kathy Keller. And in that book, he talks about how when someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ, how you relate to other people is completely altered. Whether you're married or single, how you relate to other people when you trust in Jesus, it's completely altered. Jesus describes it this way. You love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. It's not me first. It is with the same intensity of which you love yourself, you love your neighbor. Paul goes on to say, in humility, Philippians chapter 2, consider others, what? Does anybody know? Better than yourself, more significant than yourself, more important than yourself, depending on which translation you're looking at. It totally alters how we deal with one another. I am to consider you better than myself and to sacrifice my life, my wants, my desires in order to show you the love of Jesus. That's how I'm to relate to you. And I stumble through that and I'm imperfect. And that's how you're to relate to everyone together. It's what happens when the Spirit of God comes inside. It's just an altering of how you interact. This is what Paul means. When the Spirit comes inside, we have an others-centered, God first, but an others-centered focus with our service. We're sacrificial. We submit to one another. And it's out of that submitting to one another that he then begins to talk about what it looks like for specific roles in the home, does it in other places in the church. But what we must see first and foremost is the first point is biblical marriage is a spirit-filled relationship. When you start talking about marriage, a biblical marriage is a spirit-filled relationship. And so as we think about what does it look like to live in a healthy marriage, the mentality shift is we need to be filled by the Holy Spirit so that we might love one another well. I don't know about you. I can tell a significant difference in my life when I have stopped and spent time with Jesus, read his word, spent time praying for others, confessing sin, asking Him to move and to work in my life. I can tell a significant difference between that, Sean, and the one that wakes up frantic, might not open his Bible that morning, might say a quick, Lord, help me kind of prayer, and scoots on to his day, checking emails, overwhelmed by life, How do I respond to people out of those two reservoirs? One's full and the other one's empty. You know what empty looks like for me? I get irritable with my wife. I get short. Things get on my nerves easily. You get impatient. Rather than thinking about how to love, I'm thinking about why aren't they serving me? Rather than thinking about how to bring comfort, I'm thinking about Why don't I have comfort? This kind of spirit-filledness is what is essential in order for us to do anything that God has called us to do in any relationship. But specifically, Paul here is saying how it applies to a marriage 
relationship. We must be spirit-filled people. If not, what also happens is not only do we get selfish, but we can get codependent. My spouse becomes my savior. And when my spouse lets me down, when they're not there for me, when they don't say the right thing, when they might be selfish, I'm crushed or I'm angry or I'm in despair because I have put onto them what only Jesus was meant to fill. Tim Keller says this in his book, if you add two vacuums to each other, you only get a bigger and stronger vacuum, a giant sucking sound. This is a codependent relationship. It's this sense of, I need you, I need you, I need you. You're the only thing that can fill me up. And they're like, I need you, I need you, I need you. You're the only thing that can fill me up. And all you do is you create one big, giant sucking sound. It's bad. It's destructive. It's painful. You get exhausted. You get in despair because you realize you can never measure up to what they feel like they need. It is a destructive mentality. And Paul here is saying, in all relationships in the church, married or single, we must be spirit-filled. But specifically, as he applies it to marriage in verse 22 and following, there's this sense of we must be spirit-filled individuals. If we seek to be in relationships without seeking the filling of the Spirit of God, we'll be like an individual who says, Rather than, you know, if you go to a weight room and you work out, you might get some like barbells or something. And normally you're told to do like three sets of, you know, like sets of five or sets of ten or something like that. If you try to do life without the working of the Spirit, it'd be like, no, I'm better than this. I'm going to do three hours of constant curls. And I'm just going to go at it. I'm just going to go at it. What happens is about, you know, for some 30 seconds in, for some, you know, a minute or two, whatever, you literally burn your arm out. Like you won't be able to use your arm. You know, can't put my arms down. You know, it'd be like, ow, massive pain. This is what happens. You were never designed to do it on your own. It's almost like when you're benching, how you need a spotter. And if not, all of a sudden that bar is going to be around your neck because you're not strong enough to pull it off. This is what happens. It seems like you can sustain it for a season, but eventually it'll choke you. It'll crush you. Spirit-filled relationships, spirit-filled marriages. This is the biblical picture of a healthy marriage. The marriage is, a biblical marriage is spirit-filled, but a um, spirit-filled marriage is also a covenant. The second idea is spirit-filled marriage is a covenant. So, now what we do is you run to the end of the passage, and this is where we get this idea. So, the run into our passage is that we must be spirit-filled believers. That's the only place you will have the energy and the passion and the strength to live in a healthy marriage. Now he tells us that this spirit-filled relationship is a covenant. Look at verse 31 and following. Now he goes and he quotes Genesis chapter 2. And he says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is covenant language, this coming together, this one flesh sign. This is marriage as covenant. Now, let's make sure we got the background. The apex of creation, God wanted to image forth himself, and to do so, he created man. But he said, it was not good 
for man to be alone. The imaging of himself was both male and female to image himself forth. And those male and female, they needed each other. Man and woman was not just a social construct like we are being taught today. It's something rooted in creation. God created male and female to be different, to be complementary, to be a team, to image forth the glory of God. When God told them to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, that wasn't just to the man. Or it wasn't just to the woman. Together, they were to both subdue the earth, have dominion. Both were needed to procreate. Okay? You follow me? we got kids in the room, but it's not going to happen with just a man. you got to have man and a woman. So there was this sense from the beginning of equal dignity and value and worth from the beginning. But also, man is the physical source of woman. And man named woman, which is where the New Testament gets what we see in our passage today, this idea of male headship or leadership. But it was rooted in creation, not in culture. It's not a cultural construct. Some people are throwing out passages of the Bible saying this was just cultural. This was rooted, according to Paul, in creation. It's not just a reaction to the culture of the day. However, Kathy Keller, in the book, The Meaning of Marriage, she says this, A piece of the man is removed to create woman, which strongly implies that each is incomplete without the other. There's this sense of the needing of both, not one over the other, this sense of togetherness. And then the woman in Genesis 2, remember we're trying to get the background for this one quote where this idea of marriage covenant happens. The background is the woman is called a helper. That image of helper is the same word that's used in other places in the Old Testament of where reinforcements were needed for the battle. And if the reinforcements didn't show up, the battle would be lost. This isn't some add-on, some icing on the cake, but the cake is there. No, this is an essential part of the storyline. The battle can only be won together. It's a compliment. Her presence is not just for show. She was brought to supply what was lacking in the strength of the man together. Now, but what happens in our culture is each gender is tempted to think of itself as omnicompetent. I can handle it myself. We don't need one another. Newsflash, God is the only one that gets that role. We all need people. He's the only one that's not lacking. We need each other. We were created for partnership and for unity and working together to fulfill God's commands and to bring glory to his name. This is why the church is so crucial. We need one another, married and single, together, working together to make much of Christ, to be and to make disciples. The church is the place where singles and marrieds come together, male and female, to be and to make disciples. We need each other, and if we try to go it alone, it will always fail. Humility says, I need you. Now, Paul tells us, though, the most intimate expression of this male and female needing one another is the marriage union. And this marriage union is the most intimate covenant because it is both horizontal and it's vertical. 
So in Genesis chapter 2, it says what is quoted here in Ephesians 5. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast. Some old translations say cleave to his wife. The idea is like glue. And you need to think like permanent cement, not like Elmer's glue. Because that stuff, you know, it doesn't hold up very well. It's this glue that binds you together into this one covenant, this one flesh covenant. You cleave to each other. And as you come together, a covenant is formed. We hear this in the scriptures. Listen to Malachi chapter 2 verse 14. In Malachi 2.14, a man is told that his spouse is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Also, Proverbs 2.17 describes a wayward wife who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. When you get married, the Bible tells us you are making a covenant, a commitment with each other and before God. I don't know how many wedding ceremonies you've been to. I get the privilege to do several of them. And as you do a wedding ceremony, there's a couple of things that happen. I always insist on gospel being shared and on vows being shared. But part of that vows being shared, you've got to think through it. Because sometimes the vows can only be horizontal, right? That is... I love you all a bunch. You know, it's how it rolls. And you're so special to me. And I promise to be with you and to care for you. And, you know, I can see it in the room. Those couples who have been married for a little bit, they're sitting over here while this couple is just holding each other's hands and looking. And it's almost the cynical look like, yeah, just give it some time, bro. Yeah, uh-huh. You know, this kind of cynical thought like, yeah, that's, that's sweet now. Just give it some time. Okay, we need the Spirit of God to bring to fruition these promises. This is why I regularly try to say, and by the grace of God, I promise to. I include that in their marriage vows. But they're making these vows horizontally. It's a promise to each other that, that you want to love each other and sacrifice for each other and not give up. But have you ever heard a wedding where questions are asked? I, as a pastor, might ask a question. Do you commit to be the loving leader of your home, to be a sacrificial servant? And the answer is, what? Yes, or I do, or I will. Are they making that promise to me? They're looking at me when they say it. They're not looking at their spouse to be. They're looking at me. Yeah, I'll, I'll do that. Who's the promise made to? The promise is a vertical promise. When they say, I will, it is a promise and a commitment before Almighty God that, yes, I need your help, but this is about you and your glory, God. And therefore, when they talk to each other, it's about, God, give me the grace to love this person like you command me to, to show off your love for me. This is a covenant relationship glued together. And in those declarations of love, as they're sharing those vows with each other, it's not just present love. Because that's easy in the moment, right? You look so pretty. We might be going on a fancy trip, you know. We've been waiting for this moment. Present love is not as hard to come by in that moment for most. 
It's not a declaration of do I love you in this moment. It's a declaration before God and these witnesses that I will choose to love you in the future. And you're like, how in the world does that happen? Because I don't know the future, but you know your God. God will give you everything you need. This is what is the foundation of the covenant. God Almighty working for His people to accomplish what He commands. So, if the first one is that we must walk by the Spirit, this second idea is that we've We must stay in marriage through covenant love. Yes, we do believe that there are exceptions in the scriptures that allow for, in small cases, for divorce. But the overwhelming sense of the scriptures is that covenant love demands that we stay in the marriage. So Tim Keller says this in his book, Meaning of Marriage. What then is a covenant? It creates a particular kind of bond that is disappearing in our society. It is a relationship far more intimate and personal than mere legal business relationship. Yet at the same time, it's far more durable, binding, and unconditional than one based on mere feeling and affection. A covenant relationship is a stunning blend of law and love. Now, the first idea that he's addressing... Some view marriage as a legal business transaction. Many cultures where romantic love is not first, family is first. Or continuing on the family name. And therefore, what's more important is not do you have feelings for that person, but can you make a good life together to continue the family name? There is this sense of, that's why arranged marriages happen in multiple cultures. It is You need a legal declaration that you are together to continue the family name. But feeling and emotion, those things are over here. Well, the Western culture is just the opposite. It is not built upon a commitment. It is built upon a feeling of romantic love. Romantic love is what brings the essence of a fulfilled life, according to our culture. And then we wonder why at times when you, and you will, fall out of love, fall out of like with this person, you wonder what's going on. We have defined love wrongly. We've defined it as a romantic love. And so what the covenant idea brings is law and love. Yes, marriage can be filled with deep emotional joy and love. And that is wonderful. But it comes... Not by saying me first, but it comes through spirit-filled sacrifice that considers the needs of your spouse more important than your own. It comes by saying, I choose you over me. And when you don't feel it at all, you still say, I choose to love you. This is marriage. Love is choosing action Overfeeling. It is not how we feel on a given day. It is saying, I choose you. And this is why the biblical understanding of marriage has at its foundation friendship, not primarily romantic aspirations. C.S. Lewis says this Lewis insisted that the essence of friendship is kind of 
the exclamation of this quote. He says, you too? You know, it's like, do you like to play dominoes? You too? You know, do you like to watch movies? You too? You know, it's, a, it's this kind of, you know, this, it's one of the phrases that binds you together in friendship. You too? But here he goes on to say, while erotic love can be depicted as two people looking at one another, friendship can be depicted as two people standing side by side, looking at the same object and being stirred and entranced by it. Friendship has at its essence you looking at something else and going after that together. It could be that you love the Star Wars trilogy. And so you love other people that love Star Wars. It could be that you love NBA basketball and people are united around basketball. And those are great things that build some friendship. But the way that multiple cultures from every nation, tongue, and tribe, male and female, can come together and be friends in the church is that there's an object, a person, a trajectory that says Christ is my all and I'm going after him. In a marriage, it's the same. A spirit-filled marriage says, you're not my savior, you're not my savior, he's my savior, and together we're going after him. I've said it in marriage counseling a lot of times. If you two, although husband and wife, you feel really far apart, if you are walking towards Jesus, you will be walking towards one another. Run away from Jesus? Yeah, you'll run away from each other. But if you walk towards Jesus, you will walk towards each other. This is the idea of covenant. Marriage is a spirit-filled covenant. And so, why is that relationship so important? Paul tells us here in verse 32. Because it's a mystery. But this physical union, this coming together, how the husband loves the wife and the wife loves the husband, how she respects him, how he leads her, how they sacrifice for one another, how they value and honor one another, how there's a give and take of mutual respect and dignity, that is not just physical. It is a picture to the world in 3D of Jesus' great love for his church. That's what's at stake. Much more than you and I feeling good, what's at stake in us sticking together is showing off the beauty of Jesus. This is what he says, isn't it? The mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers, verse 32, to Christ and the church. It's a profound mystery. So it's not just a covenant, it's a picture book covenant. When I started having children... One of my greatest things that I loved was that I got to return back to picture books. It's more my speed. I just, I, I like pictures in my books, you know, it's just, I like it. So I'm sitting there reading picture books and this is, this is what marriage is. It's a, it's a picture book that puts on display the covenant love of God. But sadly, many times we choose ourselves. We want to give up too quickly. We say, I choose me, not you. It's like taking a permanent marker and marking all over that beautiful picture. It distorts it. I have some good news. If that's your story, your marriage, God specializes in redeeming that. He can turn it into beauty. But the call today is, choose love.
choose to demonstrate and display the love of Jesus. There's a man named Peter Cesaro. I've been reading a book by him called The Emotionally Healthy Leader. And some of you singles, I understand, like the temptation in this moment is like, he's talking so much about marriage, it's exhausting. And because one, either you don't want to be married, and so it feels like this doesn't apply to you, or you really want to be married, and it's just like I'm stepping on you or kicking you in the gut every time I talk about it. So I want you to know I'm not insensitive to your pain here, okay? I'm just trying to follow where the scriptures take us, but remember these principles of sacrifice and spirit-filledness are meant to apply to the whole church. This idea of friendship having its aim as Jesus, that's what binds you together. If you make friendship the goal, you won't have friendship. You have codependency and you start you know, sucking the life out of each other. Go after something together. Peter Cesaro in his book, Emotionally Healthy Leader, he says this, that leading out of our singleness or our marriage has two different roles in reflecting the love of God. I want you to know, for the first 1,500 years or so of the church, marriage was not held forth as the model. Singleness was. Now it's been reversed. Since the the Reformation, marriage is now kind of put forth, and many singles in the churches today, they feel like second-class citizens, but that was not always the case in church history. And even in the scriptures in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says that there is value in being single. Choose that position if that's what God has given you because you are able to be less distracted in your love for others and your demonstration of Jesus. So, don't wish away your singleness. Lay it before the Lord. Go after Him. But here's what Peter Cesaro says. He says, Singles uniquely show the breadth of God's love, how wide it goes, while marriage uniquely shows the depth of God's love because they focus on one person and they love them deeply. Each one of us, leading out of our marriage or leading out of our singleness, we have a unique way to show off the love of Jesus. One's not first class and the other second class. We all have a unique way to show off the love of Jesus. Whether it be the breadth of God's love or the depth of God's love. This picture book covenant is meant to show off Christ's love for the church. Now in this final idea. Spirit-filled marriage is not only a covenant relationship that says, I want to stay in the game. I'm going to choose love in action over my feelings for the sake of Christ. But spirit-filled marriage acts in gospel sacrifice. I tried to think of two words that could be used to summarize both the wife and the husband's role, even though the way that they live them out might be different. And I believe it could be summarized from the scriptures here, gospel and sacrifice. Spirit-filled marriage acts in gospel sacrifice. And verse 33 of Ephesians chapter 5 kind of summarizes his message, and that is this. However, let each one of you husbands love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That's the summary statement of verses 22 through 30. So let's flip back there and make sure we understand it as we conclude. Spirit-filled marriage acts in gospel sacrifice, and he begins by addressing the wife. 
You see that in verse 22? In verse 22, he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. This idea of your own husbands means that there's not an obligation for wives to submit to other husbands. It's to your husband. This idea is also not meant to apply that women in general submit to men throughout society. There's a unique way that the scriptures hold out this complementary relationship. It's in the church and in the home. Right now he's addressing the home. And it plays out differently in the church, which we can talk about. But right here he's addressing the home. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That is... As you submit to, the, to your husband, you are submitting to the Lord. You are obeying and following the Lord. And it says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. So, although, in the scriptures we've already seen, verse 21, husband and wife should be mutually submitting to one another, Right? Submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. You should be sacrificing for one another and loving one another. Here, there's a unique aspect that the wife submits in a way that the husband does not. There's a uniqueness to her submission. Wives, submit to your own husbands to the Lord. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Let's be clear. When the wife submits... To the husband, it does not mean worship the husband. No other gods before me. It does not mean make your husband the savior, the infallible man. Newsflash, none of them are, including me. It's not a savior because that's what he says here. It's Jesus who's the head of the church and he himself is the savior. So there's a distinction. But here, this idea of submission is... Loving sacrifice for the leadership of the husband. Now, I wanted to give um, an opportunity for a woman to speak on this issue. So I have an extended quote from Kathy Keller in this book, Meaning of Marriage. I normally don't quote this long, but I'm going to quote this book. I mean, this. Uh, the, I'm going to quote Kathy, who is quoting... Uh, who's being quoted in Meaning of Marriage by Tim and Kathy Keller, and she's thinking about and reflecting on the passage Philippians 2, 5 through 11. So I'm going to read the passage, and then I'll read the quote. Here we go. Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11 has helped her understand this idea of submission. So I'm going to read it and then give you her thoughts on it. It says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's just finished saying before, he's just finished saying, in humility, consider others more significant than yourself. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to. He didn't lose his godness, but he intentionally, voluntarily emptied himself, verse 7, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, 
Here are some reflections by Kathy Keller on what it means to submit and what she draws from this passage. Quote, Nevertheless, when I first heard Christians talk about male and female as different but equal, they might say different roles yet equal in essence, sometimes those words are used. Whenever I heard that, it sounded a little too much like separate but equal, the motto of segregation. So my first encounter with ideas of headship and submission was both intellectually and morally traumatic. But fortunately, I had some gifted teachers who steered me to the Philippians 2 passage. And then I saw it. If it was not an assault on the dignity and divinity, but rather led to greater glory of the second person of the Godhead, that's Jesus himself. If it was not an assault on the dignity and divinity of the second person of the Godhead to submit himself and assume the role of a servant, then how could it possibly injure me to be asked to play out the Jesus role in my marriage? She goes on. This passage is one of the primary places that the dance of the Trinity becomes visible. The son defers to his father taking the subordinate or submissive role. The father accepts the gift, but then exalts the son to the highest place. Each wishes to please the other. Each wishes to exalt the other. Love and honor are given and accepted and given again. In 1 Corinthians 11.3, Paul says directly what is implied in Philippians 2, and that is that marriage correlates with this trinity relationship now she goes on understanding that submission to my role was neither demeaning nor dangerous was a huge or a big step for me i was a woman living in the heady days of early feminism albeit one who never personally felt the need for its advocacy and protection to choose willingly to submit or to be submissive didn't sound like me in the slightest nor was it a choice that was either understood or encouraged by anyone around me. But an even bigger leap was required to understand that it took an equal degree of submission for men to submit to their gender roles. They are called to be servant leaders. In our world, we're accustomed to seeing the perks and privileges accrue to those who have the higher status. Platinum mileage flyers, right? receive free upgrades to first class, and along with that, free food and drink and free baggage checking. But in the dance of the Trinity, the greatest is the one who is the most self-effacing, most sacrificial, most devoted to the good of the other. Jesus redefined, or more truly defined properly, headship and authority, thus taking the toxicity out of it, or the toxicity of it away at least for those who live by his definition, rather than the world's understanding. Told you it was long, just a little bit more. How did Jesus define leadership or headship and redefine it in a way of sacrifice? Well, he teaches us that in John 13, 1 through 17. Jesus, on the night before his death, famously, this is Kathy still, I'm quoting her, famously washed his disciples' feet, but showing and teaching them how he was redefining authority and headship. The master has just made himself into a servant 
who has washed his disciples' feet, thus demonstrating in the most dramatic way that authority and leadership mean that you become a servant. You died to self in order to love and serve the other. Jesus redefined all authority as servant authority. Any exercise of power can only be done in the service to the other, not to please oneself. Jesus is the one who did not come to be served as the world's authority figures expect to be, but he came to serve to the point of giving his life. Here's the summary. I know it. Take a deep sigh. Here we go. In Jesus, we see all the authoritarianism of authority laid to rest and all the humility of submission glorified. Rather than demeaning Christ, his submission leads to ultimate glorification where God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Punchline, both women and men get to, quote, play the Jesus role in marriage. Jesus in his sacrificial authority. Jesus in his sacrificial submission, end quote. So, summary, no matter whether you're the wife or the husband, you get the privilege to take on the Jesus role. It's just two different aspects of his loving leadership. So what does it look like for the wife to take on, to voluntarily choose submission? It is to say, I want to put my husband's needs above my own. And she tries to nurture and foster his loving leadership. It's summarized in verse 33 as respect. And when he is not leading in a great way, Sometimes he needs to be told as a friend, faithful are the wounds of a friend. But other times, Peter says, you win him over without a word. You win him over by your actions of love and sacrifice. What does it look like? It looks like support, care. I can tell you in my own marriage, my wife is more in tune with some of the needs of my children than I am. She has more wisdom at times than I do. She is extremely competent and filled with the Spirit. So much so that I have to be careful not to lean on her all the time and abdicate my leadership. Yeah, that's a good way to go. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, let's do that. Never thinking, what does it mean to lead my home? Just, yeah, that's great. Let's do this. It's a give and take. It's a both and. It's an initiative that says, let's talk about this. I want to know what you're thinking. It's listening. It's caring. It's nurturing. But if you remember, I said there's two words that summarize the wife and the husband's position. It's gospel and sacrifice. If sacrifice is, I want to nurture the loving leadership of the husband, it's also gospel, which is, what if he fails? It's speaking the gospel to him. It's reminding him that he is loved by Christ. It's not making him perform well for you in order that you might love him again. It's saying, even though you hurt me, I choose to love you. I care for you. I want to remind you of the gospel of Jesus. I've been forgiven much. I forgive you. It's gospel and sacrifice. But in the scriptures, Paul's instruction is not just to the wives it's primarily the bulk of it is to the husband and it says husbands love your wives as christ loved the church in a spirit-filled marriage it requires actions of sacrifice and gospel gospel sacrifice 
And so it begins with the husbands. Remember this from the beginning. Husbands in some sense submit to their wives. Meaning they lay down their rights and they sacrifice to them. But in a unique way they are meant to be the leader of the home. It says here the head of the house. That is not, and hear me, it is not a declaration of superiority. And it is not a declaration of differing in value or worth. The world puts that on that. Jesus does not. Equal in value and essence. And worth. Instead of a comment of superiority, it's a comment of care. It's a comment about his role to look out for her, to lead her, to guide her, to nurture her, it says. You see that in the passage where it says, verse 29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as the husband cares for his own body, he should even more so care for his wife. Because if he's not caring for her, he's neglecting himself, it says. Because there's a one flesh union. The man is meant to love her as the loving leader of the home. Declaring roles is crucial. I don't know if you've ever been to um, like a, a YMCA or someplace that's offering an exercise class, okay? So let's say you go into a cycling class and you roll into this cycling class and instead of having an instructor up there, everybody who comes in is an instructor, okay? So now everyone comes in and the, the loudest person is the one that wins. So they say, okay, we're going at a level 10 and we're going to go up a mountain. Okay, great. And then another person's fed up with that because they get tired. And they say, no, I want a level three and I want to go downhill. And then the next person says, no, I need a little more resistance. I want to go here. What is that? It's mass chaos is what that is. It works better when the instructor in the front says, okay, I care for you. I want your good. This is a great way to go. Let's go together. And then you volunteer whether you want to take the class or not. You know, you come in there and then you do this thing. Another example, because that you might think, well, that's an illustration of a solo instructor not taking any input from anybody else. Well, take a football analogy. The quarterback has clearly got a role. In that huddle, the call comes to him, and then he tells everybody what the play is. The linemen there are not saying, hey, I want to do this play. And the wide receiver, no, I want to do this play. And, you know, they're not stomping and that kind of thing. No, there's a clear clarity. It's coming from the coach. It's going to the quarterback, and there's disseminating it. There are clear roles. This is what's needed for health. The husband in his leadership is meant to be characterized by love and that love is meant to point that wife to Jesus do you see where I get that look at verse 25 and 26 husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might set her apart or sanctify her now hear me that's not meant to be creepy okay this is not like oh his leadership she's mine this is how the world views leadership many times. It is not creepy possessiveness. It's, it's not making her existence about you. She's not an object for your status. No, she is a sister in Christ to love. God says she's a treasure, the apple of his eye, and she is valuable. She is not an object to use, but a person to love. 
And she is uniquely set apart as God's child. She is a thinker. She has great opinions and insight and great passions. She's not just a learner. She's a teacher. This is all part of the mutual submission that the husband and wife, there's a give and take. Women are necessary reinforcements that were it not for their presence, love, wisdom, and strength, the battle would be lost. However, the husband has a solo goal in mind, and that is, how can I help her see the love of Christ in me that she might hunger for Jesus more than me? It's to get her to the end. And the passage says, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The goal is to get her to the end. The goal is that her faith would last. And so I just have a couple of things that I think, a few things here that are helpful. What does it look like for the husband to lead? It looks like leading a culture of honor in your home. You should be the most vocal about how much you love your spouse and how she is the apple of God's eye and how much you care for her. You should talk that way. You should tell her you love her. I've talked with several people and it is astounding to me in counseling how many people have never been told they are loved. The husband is meant to know the love of Jesus and to speak it and to say, I love you. And if you know that love is not a feeling, it's not about you feeling love for them in that moment. It's saying, Christ has loved me. I choose to set my affections upon you. And so it can be a regular comment to one another. Leading a culture of honor. You are a child in Christ. You are loved. You are fought for. You are cherished. We've got to talk that way. The other thing a husband does, gospel sacrifice. That means it's not bossing around and it's not thinking you are superior. It is laying your life down for the good of your wife. It is saying, I consider your emotions more than my own. Your loves more than my own. Your body more than my own. Your heart more than my own. I consider you. It means I Study her. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Live with her in an understanding way. You're, you're going to seek to understand her and to know her. You get a lifetime to study her. That's gospel sacrifice. Gospel grace. I tell you, this is one that is almost always a go-to in marriage counseling. How do you talk about each other? <laughs> I tell you... If, if couples usually get to me, it's not usually for like proactive stuff. It's usually for repair. And so when they're coming in, there's some type of drama or trauma that's happened. And what many times we're most aware of is all the difficulty. And what I regularly say is, but have you seen anything that this individual has done to show you the love of Jesus? And it takes a while because their mind hasn't been going there. But I guarantee you, if you do the hard work, you can say, well, yes, they did this. They said this. We've got to look for and talk about where God is at work in the lives of others. And that applies to marrieds or singles. We need to talk about where we see the grace of God in each other's life. And finally, as the husband leads, 
He needs to foster a culture of gospel forgiveness. Because the way it rolls is, last I checked, none of us are Jesus. He's the only infallible one. So every single marriage is going to be filled with mess. Every one of them. And so what we must do is we must forgive one another. Where in the world will I have the energy to forgive? Where in the world will my family have the energy to forgive and to receive my apology? It'll come by the husband washing them with the water of the word. I remember I read that passage. I first got married. I knew exactly what it meant. It meant that I needed to do a Bible study with my wife. So I took out the Bible. I searched commentaries. I was ready for that moment. We sat down on the couch. I remember it. And I gave her about a 10-minute sermon. And after it was done... I was done, and I was just waiting for her to tell me how great I was and how helpful that was and how her life was totally changed. And she started saying, but what is this here, and is that really what it thinks here? And all of a sudden, you know, now she's stepping on my pride, which I had a lot of. And so she was just like, but this was supposed to be just like really clear. I give you Bible, you tell me it was good, and we move on. It's not how it works. And I got clued in by the precious Holy Spirit who convicted me that this is meant to be an initiative that's a give and take. It's called a relationship. And we began to listen to each other. And it began to take on many creative forms. Washing each other with the water of the word was not a Bible study. It was, why don't we pray together at night? Or why don't we pray when, when you're sharing with me that this is really hard, why don't we just stop right now and we pray and I'll pray the word over you. It's sending her a text sometimes during the day that says, I'm praying this for you. And I love you. We've got to creatively think about how to get the Bible with one another. Yes, we do some family devotions over meals at times, but it's an as-you-go time in the Word together. It's that the Word is central in our homes. And when that happens... The Spirit of God begins to burst forth. And we begin to love one another as the Scriptures have shared. So maybe some homework as you go. One question. The summary in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 33. Husbands, why don't you just ask your wife? Do you feel like that I'm showing you the love of Jesus? And if not, is there an area that I can grow in? Because I really want, I really want to serve you. I love you. I need his help, but I want to choose you. Wives, using Ephesians chapter 5, verse 33, ask your husband, do you feel like that I make your leadership a joy? Do you feel like that my relationship with you is one of respect? I want to show Jesus to you. And I want to sacrifice for you. One question. Listen. Don't be defensive. Just receive. Low expectations. High prayer. Okay? Let me pray. Father in heaven. We plead right now. That marriages in this church. And all relationships in this church would be characterized 
by being spirit-filled. That we would be leaning on Jesus, as imperfect as we are, leaning on Jesus. Father, I pray that marriages would also be characterized by covenant love. This picture book covenant love that displays to one another and to the world your great love for the church. Father, please help us. Help us to demonstrate your love. And I pray that that would come. You would fill us by your Holy Spirit that we would reflect gospel sacrifice, the speaking of gospel grace. Forgiveness would be characterized, it would characterize our homes and that humility and apology would come forth. Lord, I ask that we would not expect perfection, but we would just seek to take that next step. Father, please, one step. Help us to take one step towards loving and honoring and following you. Lord, I ask that you would heal marriages. Some are a beautiful picture of this, and they're thriving, and right now they feel like they're in a good spot. Others, they came in in shambles and in brokenness. And Father, I just ask that as we go to the Lord's Supper, that you would, you would just melt hearts. You would rip away hardness. You would remove the thoughts of all of the bad stuff that's happening, and you would help us to think about where your grace is at work. Father, please help. Open the door wide for forgiveness in homes, in hearts. Father, I pray that our singles would lead out of their singleness and that there would be a contentment that you birth in their soul. And that, Father, they would cultivate friendships and they would, in their lives, spread the breadth of your love. I pray, Father, that they would go hard after you. And watch friendship birth. I pray for deep lasting friendships. For all of us in our church. Father. Now as we go to the Lord's Supper. Meet us I pray in power. Where we need to confess our sin. Help us to do that. Where we need to go to a brother or sister. Help us. It could just be asking them for prayer. It could be saying I had you on my heart. And I want to pray for you. It could be just listening. It could be asking for forgiveness. Father, just bring reconciliation today. And at the end of all of this, may our hearts be filled with a celebration that you are for us and not against us. You're with us. Your spirit is inside of us by simple faith alone. Change us, I pray. Work within our lives. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We're going to take the Lord's Supper, two tables in the front, one in the back. If you're a follower of Jesus, we encourage you to get up when you're ready to go get the bread and the cup, go back to your seat, or you can come up front or go and engage somebody if you need to pray over them. But this is a time when we have reconciliation with the Lord and reconciliation with each other. It's what we said at our baptism, that we have died to sin and we are alive in Christ and that He is our King and our treasure. If you're not a follower of Jesus, this meal is not for you because it's a declaration that Jesus is your Lord and you love him. But this time is for you. It's for you to confess your sin and to ask Jesus to change you from the inside out. Trust him to be your boss, your king, your Lord, your savior. And to do what only he can do. To wash you clean, to set you free.
So wherever you find yourself, use this time in honoring to the Lord. Let's take the Lord's Supper together.